Well, good morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know all that has gone on for us this day already. You know the things that burden our hearts and minds. You know the things that are likely to distract us from your word. We pray for that work of your spirit that we might now understand what you would have to say to us. And where we need to change, we pray that you would make that change. Where we need encouragement, you might encourage us. Where we need rebuke, you might rebuke us. That your word might do its work in us and that we might live as your faithful people. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the great French reformer of Geneva, John Calvin, described the human heart as a perpetual factory of idols. We habitually try to make God in our own image. We decide what he is like and how he is to be served by his human creatures. And invariably we get it wrong. We end up with idols and human traditions. Despite the growing number of people who indicate that they have no religion when it comes to the national census, it seems we all instinctively have a sense of what religion is or should be, and invariably we get it wrong. (coughs) Even when we are talking about Christian faith and how it is lived out, even sometimes when Christians are talking about Christian faith and how it is lived out, We get it wrong, amongst other reasons, because we have not understood just how radical, just how new, just how interruptive the coming of Jesus is. One of the greatest dangers uh, for us in the West in the 21st century, yes, even in this room this morning, is treating faith in Jesus as an additive to life like the fuel additive that makes the car do what it does better and more efficiently, like the spice which gives a bit of a kick to a meal but doesn't really change the texture or its nutritional value. Faith in Christ enhances my life, yet doesn't really alter it. Not radically, not from the ground up. Is there evidence of that in our churches? Is there evidence of that in our lives? Well, the Gospels won't let us get away with that. As you know, we've been working our way slowly through Matthew's Gospel in Friday Chapel. At this rate, I'm not too sure whether we'll get to the end before I retire or the Lord returns. Uh, Be that as it may, as we worked our way through Matthew's Gospel, I hope you've seen how extraordinary Jesus really is but also how radically interruptive he is. He does not leave things as they were. And he's not satisfied with just being an additive, the spice to life. Things cannot remain the same in the wake of his coming. His coming changes everything. Consider how the Gospel begins with that astounding genealogy that links Jesus with Abraham and all the promises associated with him, and then with King David, and all the promises associated with him. Jesus is the fulfilment and the the culmination of Israel's history, 
the bearer of all the promises God had given to them from the beginning, the one, as the angel said to Joseph, who will save his people from their sins. Or consider the great events of the baptism and the temptation in the wilderness, the sky torn open and the spirit of God descending as a dove and the voice from heaven declaring, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then the adversary, the tempter, the Satan, trying to derail God's purposes as he had in the garden long before, distorting God's word, casting doubt on God's word, denying God's word, and Jesus emerging from the wilderness sinless and triumphant. And the devil left him and angels came and ministered to him. Or consider that great sermon to his disciples, the Sermon on the Mount, with that staggering statement, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the theologically educated and the holy men, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he challenged the shallow legalism and religious pretension of the scribes and Pharisees. And he spoke of the heavenly father who sees the heart and what is done in secret and who is concerned about every little thing that happens to you. Your heavenly father knows what you need. And he finishes with the challenge to something much more than lip service. He who hears these words of mine and does them. And then that astonishing series of miracles. Healing the leper, I am willing, be clean. And the centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law and the crowd and the calming of the storm, the release of the men oppressed by demons, the healing of the paralytic and the life transformation of Matthew the tax collector. He is the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he confronts the Pharisees. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Life does not just go on as before when with Jesus somehow sprinkled around the edges. His coming is much more significant than that. He is not simply the next in a series or an unexpected bonus that nevertheless confirms all you've been thinking and doing anyway. He is radically, frighteningly interruptive. Remember how the, uh, the Gerardines in Matthew 8 could not handle what he had done when he released the demon-possessed men and they begged him to leave their region. Go somewhere else, anywhere else, just not here. This is bigger than we can handle and accommodate. We have lives to live after all. Well, in Matthew chapter 9, this profoundly interruptive activity of Jesus is challenged by two groups of people. Neither of them has really understood what Jesus has come to do, what his coming means, and how things must change. Last time we met, we looked at the Pharisees who could not cope with the fact that Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. That's not how a religious leader ought to act. He's not playing by the rule book. How can we take him seriously if he acts like this? And Jesus, you remember, took the ground from under them with the words, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
This is something you were not prepared for. This is something very different. It is not just a confirmation of your idea of religion and your religious preferences. You don't get to set the terms of this ministry. In fact, your opposition shows that you have not understood the very heart of God. I desire mercy, God had told them through the prophet Hosea, not sacrifice. Relationship, not religion. And this morning we come to the second group who challenged Jesus. But this time it's not the fierce opponents of Jesus who are scandalised. It's the disciples of John the Baptist, those who should by rights have been following Jesus by now. But you and I need to hear what they said. And more importantly, we need to hear what Jesus said in answer to them, for here is something stark and confronting and at the same time massively liberating, which shows us who Jesus is and how life is very different since his coming. So will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast and your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Are the wedding guests able to mourn while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears from the garment and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. And if they do, the skins burst and the wine spills and the skins are destroyed. But they put new wine in fresh wineskins and both are preserved. This small passage falls into three parts. The question, the announcement and two brief parables. Fasting, feasting and folly. Let's start with fasting. As I mentioned a moment ago, there's something odd about these people who come to Jesus after he dealt with the Pharisees and it's not what you might first expect. These are the disciples of John. But why are they the disciples of John? John was the forerunner, the prophetic voice who prepared the way for the deliverer to come. Earlier in this gospel, John the Baptist himself had told those around him that the one coming after me is stronger than me. And I am not sufficient to untie his sandals. And in John's Gospel, we hear that John the Baptist had told them, he must increase, but I must decrease. He pointed them to Jesus. So why were they still disciples of John? Hadn't they listened to him? Hadn't they understood? Well, it becomes clear they haven't understood as they ask their question. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Fasting, you'll know, is a time-honoured religious activity. It's a sign of contrition and broken-heartedness, a recognition of sin and a tangible expression of serious devotion. As one modern writer suggests, it is about suppressing the body for the sake of the spirit. There's no time for food, because there is something far more important. By law, the Jews were required to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement when the sins of all God's people were dealt with. But the rabbis had insisted on two fasts a week, 
on Mondays and Thursdays. Fasting was a regular feature in the life of the really serious child of God. We know from the Sermon on the Mount that the scribes and Pharisees made a big deal of it, drawing attention to themselves and what they were doing. But Jesus didn't fast. Oh, yes, he'd gone without food in the wilderness, which set him up for for the great temptations of the evil one. But otherwise, he did not fast, and he did not teach his disciples to fast. And the disciples of John the Baptist noticed. Can someone who eats with tax collectors and sinners be credible as a religious leader, the Pharisees had asked. John the Baptist's disciples asked, can someone who does not fast, who does not observe the pattern of religious life we become used to, could such a person be credible as a religious leader? And they completely misunderstood. We're meant to be uncomfortable with their question. It's meant to jar because it doesn't fit with everything that has happened up to now in this gospel. They've gotten things completely, utterly wrong. It seems they did not know who Jesus is, not really. They did not know what time this was. They did not know who they were meant to be and how they were meant to act. And so Jesus gently explains it to them. So secondly, feasting. In his kindness to those who asked this question, Jesus used a picture that John the Baptist himself had used. When John the Baptist had been asked about Jesus' ministry in John chapter 3, when a Jewish man had tried to stir up trouble by telling John that the crowds were flocking to Jesus rather than to him, John had said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John had identified Jesus as the bridegroom and Jesus himself now used that language and asked, are the wedding guests able to mourn while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them and then they will fast. There are times when fasting is entirely inappropriate, you see. Refusing to eat when a wedding is in full swing, uh, when you're a guest and it's a celebration, it's more than just a little odd. It's selfish, even offensive. Imagine you were at your daughter's wedding. The decorations have been perfectly laid, the food has been served... And there at the centre is your little girl and her husband. She's beaming with happiness. He can't believe his luck. You couldn't refuse to eat, could you? What message would it send if you did? Jesus was saying that when you are standing next to the bridegroom, it's not the time to fast. It's the time to join in the celebration. It's the time to feast. You see, we celebrate by feasting while we mourn by fasting. And now is not the time to mourn, Jesus was saying. The bridegroom is here. He is with the wedding guests. This is not the time to mourn and so it's not the time to fast. And they should have known that. They should have understood that because that is what their own John the Baptist had been saying all along. 
Understand who it is who is here among you. Understand what moment this is, the moment when the authority to forgive sins on the earth has been unleashed, when sinners are being called and rescued. And understand how his coming changes everything. Yes, there will be a day when the bridegroom is taken away from them. By oppression and judgment, he will be taken away, Isaiah said. There will be a time for mourning then, a realisation of the deep, deep ugliness of sin and the need to throw yourself on mercy then. But it is not this day. This is the day of celebration. This is the time of feasting because he is here and he changes everything and he is rescuing what is lost. The neat patterns of religious devotion were interrupted by the ministry of Jesus. He could not easily be accommodated by them. He was not simply an added extra, a spice or garnish to a dish already prepared. Here was something really new, something really extraordinary. And so what they did and how they lived could not stay the same because he has come. To drive the point home, Jesus gave two illustrations, two parables. So thirdly, folly. Fasting, feasting and now folly. They make the same point, these illustrations, and they carry the same warning. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears from the garment and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins and if they do, the skins burst and the wine spills out and the skins are destroyed. The unshrunk cloth that begins to shrink the first time it gets wet and tears away from the old garment to which it was sewn. The new wine that continues to ferment inside the old wineskin, releasing gases and causing the skin to swell and finally to burst. In both cases, it's sheer folly. You can't just tack the new on top of the old. You can't just place the new within the old. It can only end in tears. The contrast is too great. The incompatibility too profound. His message is quite clear, isn't it? Jesus can't just be patched on to the old way of doing things, the old religious patterns and religious expectations. To try to is to fail to grasp how radically new and disruptive Jesus and his ministry is. He can't be squeezed into the old moulds. He can't simply be accommodated within human religious traditions and sensibilities. Jesus could not simply be patched onto the old Judaism, the religious expectations and patterns of the scribes and Pharisees, or even of the followers of John the Baptist. Yes, he is the fulfilment of the promises of the Old Testament. Yes, the whole story of God's dealings with his people comes to its climax in him, but this is not just business as usual, nor simply the next step along the journey. The bridegroom is here, and that requires something different altogether. It is a message that alongside an undeniable continuity between the Old Testament and the New, we are talking about the one God and his purpose is eternal and unchanging, 
and he is doing in the new what he promised to do in the old. Alongside all this is a radical discontinuity. There are steps that have to be taken if we are to move from one to the other. We can't just transfer Old Testament institutions or patterns of living, even patterns of devotion, to the New Testament without considering the difference that Jesus makes. The elder in the New Testament is not the priest of the Old Testament because Jesus has come. The sacrifices of the Old Testament have found their fulfilment and do not need to be repeated because Jesus has come. The buildings in which we gather are not the equivalent of the temple because Jesus has come. The identity of God's chosen people is not restricted to the nation of Israel because Jesus has come. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything because Jesus has come. We are not bound to this mountain nor Jerusalem because Jesus has come. Christian faith is not simply updated Judaism. And there is a joy that characterises or should characterise Christian congregational life and the daily walk of Christian discipleship, which stems from the simple fact that the bridegroom has come and he has promised to be with us always. After all, we are no longer in the day when the bridegroom was taken away, are we? That day has come and gone. And on this side of the resurrection and the giving of the Spirit, Jesus present amongst his people until the end of the age, just as he promised, our characteristic mode is celebration, not mourning joy and confidence rather than despair, liberation rather than regulation. We need to keep reminding ourselves how new Jesus is, how he cannot be boxed in and squeezed into the old way of doing things, how wonderful it is that he has come and he is here. But I'm persuaded we should push this message one step further. Jesus is so radically disruptive that he cannot simply be tacked onto the ordinary pattern of life in our world. He is not the fuel additive, not the condiment that enhances but does not fundamentally change the way we live. And I need to hear that, and so do you. Is our way of living the choices we make, the priorities and patterns of behaviour, are they simply 21st century Australian living with Jesus sprinkled on the side? Have we patched him on to that comfortable, convenient way of life that we share with our neighbours? Friends, Jesus is more radical than that. Jesus is more disruptive than that. And what he offers is so much better For there is one last line to the final parable, isn't there? Yes, it would be folly to try to patch unshrunk cloth to an old garment or put new wine into old wineskins. No one does that. It just doesn't work. But then he says, they put new wine in fresh wineskins and both are preserved. 
understand that this new thing is really radically new, that it cuts across the grain of our perpetual idol-making and even just the normal patterns of life in our world, understand that because Jesus has come, we are now in a different time with different priorities and a different way of seeing the world, a time of joyful celebration because of what he's done, because of what he's unleashed in the world, the powerful gospel of sinners found and rescued and saved, the gospel which changes lives forever. Understand that and you won't be constrained by religious performance or patterns of religious practice. Instead, you'll be preoccupied with the one who's come and you won't be satisfied with just tacking Christian discipleship onto ordinary patterns of life as if today is like every other day and he is like everyone else. Because we are the wedding guests and the bridegroom has come. We celebrate rather than mourn. And in the celebration, the message of sins forgiven and the life lived in response to that message are both preserved. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you might grant to us that great joy that comes from knowing that the bridegroom has come and that we are the wedding guests. And we pray, Father, that that joy might not only characterise us, but it might be infectious and that it might be used by you to draw other people to Jesus. We have heard your word. We pray for your grace to heed it. In Jesus' name.